It's also a blessing to be back here at the University Church. When I first started my career as a lawyer, I started it here in Lansing, and this was my home church. And so it's good to be back here. It brings back a lot of fond memories to be with you all, and I see a lot of familiar faces, and so looking forward to this. Why don't we say a word of prayer? And then I wouldn't say this is as, as much a message as a history lesson. So we're going to talk a little bit about history today and see what lessons we can learn from it that might be useful to us today as Seventh-day Adventists. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for just the wisdom that you've given us, Lord. The wisdom in opening the scriptures for us to truly understand what prophecy has to tell us about where we are in Earth's history, but also, Father, the wisdom in knowing how to engage in the public world, Lord, in the spheres around us so that we can be winsome for you, that we can advocate for the liberties that you've endowed each of us with, and that we can continue to advance your message um, until those very last minutes before Jesus comes. We pray that that will continue to be the case, and we pray that as we learn a little bit now about how that happened in our past history, that it would serve as inspiration for us as we look forward to the days ahead of us. We thank you, Father. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Adventists and religious liberty go to the fair. That's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about the World Columbian Exposition of 1893, or a fight that kind of happened around of it that Seventh-day Adventists got themselves involved with. As we talk about this, there's a few topics that are going to come up that we're going to be able to address and evaluate a little bit as that happens. So what's going to come up in the process of this is the topic of Christian nationalism. Also is going to come up religious liberty and then civil liberties in general. So as we talk about these events, we're going to see that these ideas start to pop up in the arguments that different sides are making over something that was a big deal for people involving this fair. So the World's Columbian Exposition, has anyone here ever heard of it? Okay, I've seen a few people. Maybe for those of you who've heard of it, it's because you heard of a little book that was published about 20 years ago called The Devil in the White City, nonfiction book about the Columbian Exposition and also a serial killer who was running around at the same time during that event. Now, a lot of people, that's the only knowledge they have of the Columbians World Fair or the Chicago's World Fair of 1893. But at that time, it was a huge deal. And when I say a huge deal, I mean a huge deal. It was like Chicago winning the honor of hosting the Olympics times 10. The purpose of this fair was to commemorate the 400th anniversary of Christopher Columbus arriving in North America. And Congress decided that somewhere in the United States we would host this fair in order to display Americanism to the rest of the world. And so many different cities were competing for it. It was just a really big honor that people thought they were going to have. And Chicago ended up winning the bid to host that fair there in the city. And that was a pretty big deal for them too because just 22 years before, the Chicago fire had taken everything out. So it was a new city itself. Um, Chicago was very excited to be able to be hosting this. Now, as I said, one of the reasons why everybody was treating this as such a big deal is everyone saw it as an opportunity to really talk about what it means to be American. In addition to that, it was the time when America was going to start showing off all the things that we have been developing here. So, for example, there's the book, in case you've never read it, you want to check it out after Sabbath. But in addition to that, 
at this Columbian World Exposition. This was the very first time that many Americans were ever exposed to indoor electricity, that they were actually able to see electric lights. It was the first time that they saw a moving sidewalk, which was courtesy of Nikola Tesla. So those walking sidewalks were used to at the airport. The very first time that one ever existed in the world was at the Chicago World's Fair. It was the first time that, you know, not that we necessarily eat them as Seventh-day Adventists, but Vienna sausages became popular there. And now you can find them on the street corners in Chicago everywhere. The first brownie was invented and served at the Chicago's World Fair and now is a you know, regular feature of many potlucks. Just all of these different new inventions and ideas for historians. There was this very famous historian who was there who said, the American frontier is now closed and we're gonna have to look at a different way to expand. And for history nerds, that was a really big deal and they still teach that in history classes in colleges around the world today. So it was a really, really, really big deal. And in fact, if you visit Chicago today, there are two remaining structures. In fact, I'll tell a little bit more about it. It was really big what they built. It was in a very short time, they built these huge buildings on lagoons that people could ride around on boats in Jackson Park. And it was built to be temporary. A fire ended up wiping through there in 1894 and it destroyed most of the buildings. But there are two remaining buildings if you go to Chicago today. One is where the Museum of Science and Industry is, and the other one is where the Chicago Institute of Art is. And so if you happen to be in Chicago, you can see those remnants of the Chicago's World Fair. But despite all of these great things, there were also some not some great parts about the Chicago's World Fair. People were excluded, and when I say people, I mean Americans. People of color were excluded from certain portions of the fair and relegated to more entertainment areas as opposed to the educational areas. Indigenous people were treated kind of like zoo animals, and you could go and you could look at them in their villages, living their daily life, like right next to other kinds of performers. And women were kind of excluded from the planning process of everything. So we are also saying that they had this idea of what America was, even in who they were allowing in certain places, was being defined. And that's going to become important as we continue to go on. That's the reason why I'm bringing this to your attention now. So, but immediately, the significance of this fair was apparent to everyone in America. Chicago was excited, but the whole world understood this is something that's really big deal. Ah, I forgot one of the coolest parts. It was on the first slide. The very first Ferris wheel. So they wanted to compete with the World's Exposition that had just happened in Paris, where they built the Eiffel Tower. And so the American answer to the Eiffel Tower was the Ferris wheel that now we see at carnivals and fairs all over the place. The very first one was there. Now, another piece of history as we move on. In the 19th century, the 1800s, there was an actual Sunday law movement in the United States of America. Now, I did not know this growing up. I grew up a Seventh-day Adventist. Both of my parents are Seventh-day Adventists. I went to Seventh-day Adventist schools from preschool until I graduated from high school. I did not know there was a Sunday law. There was anything really huge about Sunday laws going on in the country until I started studying it in college and in graduate school. But in the decades leading up to the World's Fair, the Sunday laws enjoyed a lot of popularity across the country. Between 1888 and 1893, nearly 150 national Sunday rest bills were introduced in Congress, none of which succeeded. And we're gonna get back to talking about one of those in a second but about 150 of those on a national level. Now, despite the fact that one never passed at the national level, nearly every state had some sort of Sunday rest legislation in place. One California judge wrote of Sunday laws in 1861, and it, this case was interesting 
because California had become an outlier and they outlawed Sunday laws saying that it was an establishment of religion. And we'll get into that a little bit more in a second too. But the, in bringing California back into the mainstream with the rest of the legal community and the rest of the country, this judge wrote, probably such strong concurrence of opinion on one leading question affecting the general community cannot be found in the history of American jurisprudence. So not due process of law, not you know the right of a person to have an attorney, not a lot of these other things that we take as fundamentals to our American justice system could find the same level of concurrence as the idea that a Sunday law was okay for a state to pass. Now, at the beginning of the 1800s, these laws were also explicit in what they were based on. Sunday is Sabbath, and it's the Lord's day, and so we shouldn't have any work going on on Sunday. Now, as the 19th century wore on, the idea that maybe we need to have some more secular justifications came about. And so people started using what are called police power arguments. Police power is the power of the government to enact legislation for the good of the people. And that can be anything from like criminal laws, which you know that word police then sounds a little familiar, but also public health laws, other types of laws. They started to use this secular justification for why Sunday laws were appropriate even though originally, and at their heart, we know that this type of legislation is a religious issue. It's not a public health issue. It's not a public policy issue. But that's how they tried to start to cast it. And so when we're talking about these Sunday rest laws, another thing to know is these were criminal laws. This wasn't like you got a ticket that you have to pay when you're speeding you know, on the highway because you broke Sabbath. There was an actual criminal penalty that went with violating a Sunday law. When you're talking about a criminal law, you're talking about everything that goes along with that. You're talking about prosecutorial discretion. The prosecutor decides whether or not to charge you with a crime. You're talking about criminal punishment and societal stigma, the thing that goes along with being convicted of a crime. So these laws were actually selectively enforced. It wasn't like people were using Sunday laws to prosecute the guy next door who goes to the Presbyterian church and decided to cut his hedges on Sunday. That guy is not the one who got prosecuted. The guy who got prosecuted was the poor Seventh-day Adventist or Seventh-day Baptist who was doing work in their own yard, minding their own business, but violating these Sunday laws. They were used as tools of religious intolerance even in the 19th century to persecute people who were outside that national norm of what people expected to happen. And they were used to kind of to bring pressure on these people who are outside of that norm. And what's really interesting, some of these laws even had financial incentives. So the fine that would be assessed on a person, you know, maybe $100 back then, which was a lot of money back then, half of it would go to the government and half of it would go to the informer who turned in the person who was violating the Sunday law. So it, these Sunday laws were not what they were called to be, which was, you know, let the people rest, let them take a break. No, they were being used as tools to enforce religious intolerance at this time when America is starting to grow and expand and to change and to diversify. Now, these laws went up, and when we say went up, that's kind of a, a legal shorthand. They would go up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court sustained them as legitimate exercises of the police power for me, under many different instances. 
Now, it took a long time, the 1960s, which is beyond what I'm going to be talking about today, until the U.S. Supreme Court made a decision on religious liberty grounds on whether or not Sunday laws at the state level violate the religion clauses of the Constitution. Spoiler alert, even though that's not how far I'm going to get, they said that it's okay. It's okay for a state to have Sunday rest laws and enacted, which I think as Seventh-day Adventists we should take as some affirmation, not because it's right, but it helps us understand that what we're teaching about the Bible and what's going to happen at the end of time is in fact true because the framework is already there when we're talking about the legal framework. So as we're talking about all these things, the World's Fair is a big movement. It's a really big thing. Sunday laws are a really big thing. What do you think the first, the big question then that came up in regards to the fair of 1893 and Sunday was? What are we going to do at the fair on Sundays? Sundays at the fair, shall it be opened or shall it be closed? <laughs> there was some debate over this, but not much. We'll get to what Adventists had done ahead of time a little bit later. But really, people I don't think took seriously that Congress would consider closing the fair on Sundays. Those who were in favor of Sunday closing petitioned and moved really hard on Congress to say, you should make sure that the fair is closed on Sunday. And the way they were able to do it came down to money. So what happened was this. It's a big endeavor, right? So they're building like this tiny mini city, this white city there in Jackson Park in Chicago. And the board of directors for the fair was running out of money. So they go to Congress and they say, Congress, we need some more money so we can finish having this fair so we can host the whole world here and show how great we are as Americans. And so the people who were in favor of closing Sunday lobbied very hard and they got Congress to agree to give souvenir coins and you can see some on the slides there of what those souvenir coins look like. So Congress in late 1892 authorized the minting of two and a half million worth of souvenir coins, which by the way, the first time there was a commemorative coin in US history, conditioned on the fair being closed on Sunday. So the only way that the fair could get the money that they needed to sell these coins so that then they can finish the money to build everything was going to be if they closed the fair on Sunday. Once this happened, people started to lose their minds on the other side and said, wait a second, we did not see this coming. We didn't think this was gonna happen. Um, again, we'll get to what the Adventists said. They said, oh yes, it was. We told you this would happen. People started to become very upset about this. Laborers were arguing and saying, this is the only day we would ever be able to go to the fair on. We work six days a week. So if we ever wanna see this great American thing, the only day we can go on Sunday, where are you gonna close it? And so it started all over the newspapers. When you look at the newspapers in late 1892 and 1893 in Chicago, in um, Washington, in New York, there are many, many articles about both sides of this argument on should the fair be closed? Should Congress change its mind about whether or not to keep the fair closed on Sundays? So it would be kind of like, you know, we see a lot of different news coverage about different laws today. It would be the same as it being all over the headlines on CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, and the talking heads talking back and forth with their very, you know, particular views of how things should be. That's how it was then. It was a big issue that people were arguing and felt strongly about on either sides. So Congress finally decided like, well, maybe we overreacted. Maybe we shouldn't have closed the fair on Sunday. Should we reconsider this? So they opened up a congressional hearing at the beginning of 1893, asking both sides to come in and give their best arguments for why the fair should be opened 
or why the fair should be closed on Sundays. And so that's what we're really gonna look about. What did each side kind of argue about? Because I think it really helps us understand what we can also anticipate as we're moving closer and closer towards the end of time, as we understand what it is that we learned from the other presenters this morning in the books of Daniel and Revelation of what to expect before Jesus comes on back to this earth. So, arguments to close for Sunday. So as you'll remember, I told you that these laws were very popular in general, and they were starting to be given secular reasons for why the laws should be passed, that it's good for rest and we're anti-corporate greed, you know, no man can work seven days a week, which, okay, we, we believe all of that, right? We just don't believe the state should be the one who's making that decision. But they're advancing these arguments that it's because of corporate greed that they want to keep the fair open on Sundays. They just want to line the pockets and they want to get more money to keep that floor that fair open on Sunday. But then something interesting happened in 1892. The Supreme Court heard a case. And that case was the Church of the Holy Trinity versus United States. And it's a case where an immigration statute prevented a clergyman from England to enter the United States. So it's actually, it's not a religion case, it's an immigration case. The case required the court to perform a straightforward statutory interpretation. They just have to read the law and decide what did Congress mean by this law. Nobody expected the First Amendment to come up in the question of this. But in passing, in something that we call in law called dicta, which is not the law that the judges are saying, but something they happen to mention as they're getting on their way to saying what the law is, um, they, uh, the speaking for a unanimous court, Justice Joseph Brewer stated that the immigration law could not apply to this minister because America was a, quote, Christian nation. And its laws recognized the importance of Christianity and accommodated its practice. He went so far as to say that Congress could not pass legislation that would inhibit Christianity in this way. Now, he did not 100% explain what he meant by this Christian nation maxim. That's how it became known after this case came out, the Christian nation maxim. And in the years following his, this decision, he tried to clarify it a little bit. He said that Christian nations promote freedom and belief and practice while refraining from per promoting a particular religious point of view. He thought that the government should not enforce religious norms, even if religion and Christianity deserved respect and encouragement. However, he was clear that Christianity deserved a preferred place in America. That said, this Christian nation maxim provided inspiration for the people who wanted to keep the fair close on Sundays. And after this decision comes out, all of their rhetoric goes back to saying, America is a Christian nation. Now, do you remember what was the big deal about the Colombian fair? People are trying to define what does it mean to be American? What does it mean for America in the global stage? And so these people thought that it was an opportunity to define what America is, that America is a Christian nation, and having the American Sunday is an important feature for people to understand what it means to be an American. So some of these supporters started to say things like this. One observer stated, quote, Sunday is a peculiarity of our Saxon race and of Christianity. That alone is reason enough for keeping the fair closed on Sunday. Another one pointed to ancient civilizations that lost their power, such as Egypt, India, Greece, and Rome. And the writer went on to say that, quote, they lost their power to 
the Anglo-Saxon, who opened the law of humanity and Christianity. That which gave to him the dominant power was his observance of the Sabbath. And by the Sabbath, they mean Sunday. Connecting this history with the American experience, that author went on to say, quote, while we may not all be in favor of Puritanic Sunday of our forefathers, we cannot fail to admire their stern principles, which made this country what it is today. They stood firm for Sunday observance. See how they're connecting Sunday keeping with what it means to be American and how America is getting to this preferred place in the world? They also believed that Sunday's protection was necessary for America to retain its dominant power. It was characterized as, quote, the cornerstone in the foundation and the citadel in defense of our free institutions. They also accused the opponents of Sunday legislation as, quote, in the name of liberty, those who advocate Sunday opening would destroy our institutions and bring perpetual ruin and blight upon the land that has nurtured them and that has furnished them with refuge from oppression. So they're already ca characterizing the people who are against them with this as un-American. And they describe those as opposed to keeping the fair closed also in this way, quote, foreigners who are not accustomed to our American Christian Sabbath. So they are completely trying to otherize people who are saying that no, maybe we should give a chance for people to make their own decision of what's gonna happen on the Sunday at the fair. Completely otherizing them, excluding them from what this idea is of their vision of what America is. Those who supported keeping the gates closed of the fair on Sunday did so because they're envisioning this particular type of American community. And this community was based on so-called Christian values. It was an exclusive community, we can see, with not necessarily a lot of open mind to people from other countries and certainly other worldviews. But preserving Sunday, in their view, honored their religious heritage. It maintained their superiority, and it excluded those who would not conform to that. There's a term that we use for They didn't use it back then, so let's just clarify that. Back then, but that fits that we use today to understand this kind of using Christianity to also understand our national identity. And that's called Christian nationalism. So what is Christian nationalism? I found this quote from Christianity Today um, in an article last year that was pretty helpful to help understand what it is. Christian nationalism is the belief that the American nation is defined by Christianity and that the government should take active steps to keep it that way. Popular Christian nationalists assert that America is and must remain a Christian nation, not merely as an observation about American history, but as a prescriptive program for what America must continue to be in the future. Scholars like Samuel Huntington have made a similar argument that America is defined by its Anglo-Protestant past and that we will lose our identity and our freedom if we do not preserve our cultural inheritance. It accurately describes American nationalists who believe American identity is inextricably linked from Christianity. And again, that was taken from Christianity Today, February 3, 2021, by a Paul D. Miller. Now, is Christian nationalism compatible with biblical Christianity? No. I would also argue it's not compatible with a proper understanding of the American nation, but what's most important is it is not biblical. How did Jesus respond to this? I know that Dr. McNulty already referred to this verse. Matthew 18, 36, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, 
but now my kingdom is not from here. Jesus doesn't identify his kingdom with being part of the world that we are in today. He's not seeking to use his power or spirituality in order to enact a government here. He didn't try to take over Rome. He didn't do anything like that. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. We're looking forward to a better world and a better home where Christ is king. But that doesn't mean that we try to enact it here. Similarly, Ellen White has something to say about this. And this, I know the quote is right because I double checked it. we get there. All right. Not by the decisions of courts or of councils or legislative assemblies, not by the patronage of worldly great men is the kingdom of Christ established, but by the implanting of Christ's nature in humanity through the work of the Holy Spirit. Desire of Ages 509. Not that I necessarily think we have to be fair to them, To be fair to Christian nationalists, some would argue, oh, no, no, we don't think that the law can change the way people think or feel. We just think that Christianity deserves a preferred place. But when you look at the way that they go about trying to enact legislation and to impact the civil process in the country, Christian nationalism isn't limited to America. I mean, I think we've seen a lot of it throughout American history. We've seen it also in other countries around the world. So it's not necessarily just an American problem. But when we do see it, even if it's being argued that it's not, we're not trying to limit people's religious liberty, just Christianity is what America's really about. At the end of the day, when that impacts the way that they form legislation, it does have a religious liberty impact. So despite saying that, oh no, we're not going against either of these verses, in practice, it does. So these were the arguments that the people who in favor of closing Sunday made and a slight evaluation of them. There was pushback. And there were three main groups who gave pushback. The first one I'm not going to spend a lot of time on because guess what? They were also Christian nationalists. Their only disagreement was on what's okay to do on Sunday. So is it okay to go to the fair or not? It's this educational opportunity. We think that's okay. We agree with everything else they're saying about Sunday. We just think that this is an okay thing to do on Sunday. I'm not going to spend any more time on them. The other two were religious liberty advocates and then individual liberty advocates. So now enters our Adventist hero, Alonzo T. Jones. It should not come as a surprise for anyone who has any familiarity with Adventists in our history of advocating for religious liberty that A.T. Jones found himself into um, this argument. Uh, This was not the first time he went before Congress to testify regarding Sunday laws and religious liberty. And so he complained on his way there that, look, We were circulating petitions before Congress made this decision. The Seventh-day Adventists warned you that this could happen because people were saying, oh, we didn't think it happened. He's like, see, you didn't think it could happen, and then it did. And so now he's going and he's trying to help fix this. But as he's um, heading to Washington, D.C. to make this argument, at the time he was a professor at Battle Creek College, he encountered a very modern problem. His train was late. So he had hopped on the train somewhere here in Michigan and took it out to Washington, D.C., and it got in late. But it was a providential blessing that that train was late. And the reason for that is this. The chairman of the committee that was hosting the hearings that were debating this told the people on both sides, we don't want to hear constitutional arguments. And when I say constitutional arguments, we're not talking just about the First Amendment. There are some other amendments that people brought up saying that it was outside of Congress's power. But that aside, they didn't want to hear constitutional arguments. They said, let's just assume we had the power to do this and make the public policy arguments on if this is a good idea or not, whether, you know, even though we have the the power. 
Jones wasn't there for that instruction, though, because his train was late. So when he gets in there and he gets inside, he begins to make religious liberty arguments. And you'll see, we're going to talk, in 1893, he specifically is making constitutional arguments. At a previous time he testified in Congress, he also made some additional arguments that we'll talk a little bit about. But starting with the constitutional arguments, he explicitly relies on the First Amendment, the religion clauses. The First Amendment, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So as you may be familiar with, there are two clauses to the religion portion of the First Amendment, and the first is that there should be no law respecting an establishment of a religion. That said, the federal government cannot establish a church. And it's a little bit broader than that, but that's the easiest way to summarize it. Through the course of time and further amendments to the Constitution, that now applies to the state governments as well. However, when, Amer when the Constitution was first enacted, that was not true. It was still completely within the power of a state to set up a state church if they wanted to. But the federal government has never had that power, and now no state has that power, supposedly. And then the second one is, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That is, the government cannot infringe on a person's worship according to their conscience. So when we are talking about that idea of religious liberty, we're talking about these twin notions here. The twin notion that the government cannot set up a church and the government can also not do anything to interfere with your free worship, with your freedom of conscience and exercising your belief, your faith in the way that you see fit. So Jones criticized Sunday closing as a result of Congress interpreting scripture and imposing that interpretation on the nation, which would be a violation of the Establishment Clause. He also said that this did so at the expense of communities outside of the majority, Seventh-day Adventists included, which is also a violation of the Free Exercise Clause. So while he's testifying before Congress in 1893, he's basically saying, Congress, you violated both of those clauses of the First Amendment. You're completely outside your realm of power to be able to do this. He brought up some other constitutional arguments that we won't get into today as well, um, but he was making at that time in particular constitutional arguments. And I found that interesting because as I indicated before, this wasn't his first time testifying before Congress. In 1888, there was one of these 150 National Sunday Rest Laws pending before a committee in Congress. And he again, or you know, this predates it, but he was there present testifying at that time. When he testified at that time, he didn't make constitutional arguments at all. The arguments that he made were based on the Bible and were based on history. And really, when you look at history, based on the Seventh-day Adventist understanding of Bible prophecy. And so we'll look a little bit about that too. I, my hunch is people knew him well enough at that point in what he had argued that maybe that's why he didn't think it was necessary to bring those arguments up again. Or it could be just because it was the fair and not a national law, but he didn't bring these arguments up in specific with the fair, but he did before. So the bill that he was making these arguments before was the Sunday Rest Bill, and it was to quote, a bill to secure to the people the enjoyment of the first day of the week, commonly known as the Lord's Day, as a day of rest and to promote its observance as a day of religious worship. So I want to reiterate that. Congress in 1888, and again, 150 other times between then and 1933, was considering a bill to secure to the people the enjoyment of the first day of the week, commonly known as the Lord's Day, as a day of rest and to promote its observance as a day of religious worship. I mean, I think it just sounds really foreign to us today, but this is really what was happening. 
And so at this time when Jones is arguing that law, he starts reasoning from what he called his first principles. And the first thing that he did is he turned to Matthew 22:21, And this one I'm pretty sure is Matthew 22:21. But basically, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and render unto God what is God's. His idea is this. There are two separate domains that should never cross with each other. There's that rendering of to God, which is God's, and rendering to man, which is man. Civil authority has nothing to do with that realm that is rendering unto God what is God's. And we know that those are the first four commandments of the Bible, of the Bible, of the Ten Commandments. So commandments one, two, three, four. So blasphemy laws are out. Sunday laws are out. As a result of this idea that we render to God what is God's, but then you render unto man what is man's. You render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Caesar is able to regulate those things that have to do in between people. So when you talk about the last six commandments of the people, thou shalt not kill, honor your father and the mother, you know, thou shalt not commit adultery, covet, all of you know, the last six commandments, those are realms that the civil government can interact with because they don't have to do with directly or solely with our relationship with God, but they have to do with our interaction with each other. And so civil government can legislate in that, but they cannot religiously in the things that are religious. He told them, quote, as to those things which pertain to our duty to God, society has nothing to do with an individual's right of exercising before God. And so um, he argued that the laws protected citizens who did not agree with the faith rather than denying the free exercise of those who wanted to their practice their deviant ways. And I guess not long before this, there was a law that came out. I think it was Reynolds v. United States. So it was a Supreme Court case where the Mormons were moving west. I, I'm almost positive it was a polygamy case. It's interesting, not that we agree with the way that the Mormons back then or even now worship necessarily, but they were definitely persecuted by the U.S. government. And there's a lot of religious liberty law that, that came out as a result of that. And in this case, this Reynolds v. United States was one of those cases. And in the case, they were trying to define the limits of what religious liberty are in America. And one of the examples that they gave is like, it's very clear that while we believe in freedom of worship in this country, if your belief is that you should sacrifice your child, like the government's never going to let you do that. So Joan's argument was, Yes, that's right, but it's not because we're restricting the belief of the person who believes they need to do that. We're protecting the person who would be killed. So that person who would be killed, that falls in those last six. That is the part that's okay for the civil government to do, but not infringing on the, um, on the religious liberty part. And so it's interesting also when he's talking about this part, rendering unto God what is God's and rendering unto Caesar's what is Caesar's. Uh, first of all, he kind of makes fun of them. He's like, I don't know about you guys, but Seventh-day Adventists, we kind of think, you know, a lot about George Washington. And he says that people should just be, let, you know, as long as they're not hurting other people, let them worship as they're going to worship. Um, and then he goes on to say, this is what we teach the Seventh-day Adventists. We teach them to worship according to the dictates of their conscience, to be law-abiding citizens, and to pay their taxes. So he's in front of Congress saying, this is what we teach Seventh-day Adventists to do. They can worship as they see fit, and they're going to be good citizens. They're not going to be trying to get in the way of the government with anything else, and that's why it's okay to let them worship in the way that they do. And so after that, he then turned to his historical arguments. You can see that he fully understands the Adventist view of prophecy and that he is arguing it before Congress as well. 
he goes on and he talks to them about in history what happened when Christianity tried to enforce Christian ideals through the act of law and how that eventually led to the development of the papacy. He warned that if Congress followed through with the Sunday law, that it would follow in the same um, footsteps and establish a similar power. And this was actually pretty savvy of Jones to do because at the time, in this part of American history, there was actually a very deep anti-Catholic and anti-Pope sentiment, which I think something is we don't always understand as Adventists that this was kind of going on in the country at the same time. So there were these sentiments, and a lot of times it was this view that the religion was foreign, that it was the faith of immigrants. He used then that prejudice that these people had to kind of expose their hypocrisy. Like, look, you say you don't like these things, but you're about to do the same thing that you're saying that you don't like about these things. He then took that kind of duality and used it to expose it. Specific called out the Women's Christian Temperance Union, who you would think Adventists might want to you know, get along with. Like they were a temperance movement. They were trying to get rid of alcohol and everything in the country. But they were strong supporters for Sunday laws in America. And one of their platforms was the idea to establish Christ as king in America. And so he repudiated them and said, no, look, what they are trying to do and what they're encouraging you to do by pass this law is going to make you do the very thing that you say that you don't like about these people and this religion in our country. And the last thing that Jones argued was his public policy argument. So is this a good idea? Whether it's legal or not, is it a good idea? He was against the idea of an exemption to a Sunday legislation. So okay, you can have a Sunday law, but Seventh-day Adventists, Seventh-day Baptists, other people, you could be exempted from it for your, you know, your accommodation. But he said that doesn't even make sense because one, it reinforces the idea that Congress could pass that law, which he said it cannot. And two, it's going to make a mockery of the institution. There was an example in, I think it was Arkansas, where there were people who claimed to be Sabbath keepers to get around a Sunday law. And in the process, what they did is they opened their saloon, which of course we know was like not consistent with what a Sabbath keeper from either denomination would have been in line with. And so he said, it just makes the law nonsensical. Like it would be better for you to pass an unconstitutional law than for you to try to put an exemption to make it better. But then he also reminded them that these laws lead to persecution, that people end up in jail because they can't pay the fines that they're assessed when they violate these laws and that there are people outside the norm, that it's not protecting those people who are outside the majority in the community. Now, it is interesting that in all of these arguments, both in 1893 and 1888 though, Jones limits his arguments to religious liberty arguments. Completely, he's arguing religious liberty. He's arguing it from different angles. He's arguing it from a constitutional angle because the constitution does support our view of religious liberty. He's also arguing it from a biblical view because the Bible has things to say about religious liberty. He's arguing about it from history to show what, what happens in history when we don't follow those principles and also about why it actually hurts real people. But all of these are religious liberty angles. He doesn't get into generalized civil liberties, but other people do. And we'll get to that in a second. So I just think that's an important thing for us as Adventists to note, though, is the part that he thought was important for him to really argue about was the religious liberty aspect of it. But we may ask, why do Seventh-day Adventists bother? If we know that at the end of time, Congress and apostate 
Protestantism and spiritualism and everybody's going to unite and they're going to pass a national Sunday law and then Jesus will come. Like, why don't we just get the show on the road? Like, come on, like, let's get it moving. Like, why do we bother? Why do we bother advocating for religious liberty? A few days before Jones testified in Congress in 1888, Ellen White wrote in the review and Herald regarding this issue and she said this, we have been looking many years for a Sunday law to be enacted in our land, and now that movement is right upon us. We ask, what are our people going to do in the matter? We should especially seek God for grace and power to be given his people now. God lives, and we do not believe that the time has fully come when we should have our liberties restricted. The prophet saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the winds should not blow on earth, nor on the sea, nor any tree. And that's from Revelation 7. Another angel ascending from the east cried to them, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. This points out the work we now have to do, which is to cry to God for the angels to hold the four winds until missionaries shall be sent to all parts of the world and shall have proclaimed the warning against disobeying the law of Jehovah. And again, in the Review and Herald, December 11, 1888. So why as Seventh-day Adventists do we bother to talk about religious liberty, to try to remind the government of those values that we have established in our constitution, of bringing to the government's attention the historical examples of when this goes wrong and how it hurts real people when they don't follow these principles. It's because we're doing our part to hold back those winds of strife because the gospel has not yet gone out to the whole world. And that, as Seventh-day Adventists, is our primary calling, is to take the three angels' message to the whole world. And so religious liberty is important for that, both here in our country and also, as I heard the last part of Dr. McNulty's message, that for us to advocate that for other parts of the world too. Because if we're able to get into those places and share about the truth of Jesus, we can make sure that people are warned for what's to come in these final days. Now, I said that we would get to the last group of people and what they were arguing. Individual liberty. <laughs> So Illinois had no confidence in Congress to do the right thing and to take back its provision to keep the fair closed on Sunday. So it passed its own law that recognized the liberty of the people of Illinois to decide what they wanted to do on Sundays. They also asked Congress to rescind the provision saying that it did not have the jurisdiction to make that requirement in the state of Illinois and that the requirement would deny the laboring class the only day with which they could go see the fair for themselves. And I think I mentioned this in a small part, but I really want to emphasize the people who were trying to keep the fair closed on Sunday, they relied heavily on saying, we're operating in favor of the laboring man. The laboring man, they're just working way too hard. And, you know, we really think they need a one day rest in seven. So they really leaned hard onto the, we're the ones who have the laboring class interest in mind. Turns out the laborers didn't feel that way themselves. So when they came to Congress, they were actually opposed to the fair being on Sunday. And for that same reason, one, this was the only day that they were gonna be able to go and to see the fair. But they said that these people, the, the religious people in interest of keeping things closed on Sunday, had no understanding of what their lives were like, that they were in a different economic class, a different social class, and that they were seeking to control them rather than trying to do something for their good. And they very much resisted that. 
They also argued that no one was forcing the church people to go to the fair on Sunday. So why were the church people trying to get them to go to church on Sunday or to do anything else on Sunday rather than what they had wanted to do themselves? They cited equal rights as a reason to keep the fair open, and they objected to the Christian movement coercing them to try to follow with their point of view. And so by arguing for individual liberty or freedom, these laborers were invoking the idea of civil liberty, or that is freedom of conscience, but in a broader sense than how we talk about it with religious liberty and freedom conscience. And so what is it that we talk about when we're talking about these civil liberty issues? Free speech is a conscience issue, as is freedom of press, freedom to assemble and petition the government, and of course, the freedom of religion. All of these are different examples of civil liberties. And so what is a civil liberty? A civil liberty is a thou shall not of the government. They are rights held by people that the government is not allowed to infringe on. The government is allowed to pass laws for the common good. It protects individuals from the exercise of capricious government power. Civil liberties do end at some point, though. It doesn't mean we have unlimited power and freedom. The classic thing you see a lot in law that they say is the liberty of a person to swing their arms ends at the next person's nose. So as long as you're not hurting someone else, you have freedom within that range. If someone raises a civil liberty claim, the analysis depends on many different circumstances. The liberty claimed, the reason that the government claimed for enacting legislation, and how the government went about it. Um, and it's not necessarily the same for every liberty. And the court in these instances balance competing interests. But in particular, what the Supreme Court, because it usually goes there, is looking for historically is to look out for what they called, quote unquote, discreet and insular minorities. So people who would otherwise be trampled over by the power of the majority if that law was allowed to stand, in addition to the classical civil liberties that we're talking about. So there were people who were making these arguments, but this was not the argument that A.T. Jones was going like, America's a free country, and so we should be able to do whatever we want to do. He limited it to the specific civil liberty of religious liberty. A.T. Jones didn't care if the fair was open or closed on Sunday. He's like, we really could care less. It's the way that government went about this. And so it's not the principle of if the fair should be open or closed. The principle is the government's doing something it's not supposed to be doing. So that is a civil liberty argument. He limited it to just religious liberty, but there were broader civil liberty claims being made as well. So the aftermath, what happened? Congress did not take back that provision, but they didn't give all of the money that they were supposed to do. So the fair directors said, that means we can open the fair on Sunday. Illinois, as I said, also passed their own law. And then, of course, as everything in America does, lawsuits were filed. And people were suing each other on each side, trying to say, should the fair open, should it close? So by the time the fair actually opened in May, people didn't know if the fair was closed or open on Sunday. Eventually, it did start opening on Sunday, and attendance was not what people expected. But towards the end of the fair, finally, they did get quite large numbers who would come on Sundays. In fact, before those large numbers came, the fair then tried to go back to closing on Sundays, but because Illinois had stepped in to keep it open, they then couldn't keep it closed. So everyone was kind of exposed for what they thought. The people who really were in it for the money were proven to be true. The people who thought that people shouldn't go on Sunday just didn't show up. And, you know, it all worked out. But there are still takeaways from us from that. So first of all, um, religious liberty and civil liberties are protections from government action. Those are freedoms that we continue to enjoy for the time being in this country, and we should not take them for granted. 
I think when we see what goes on in Russia, when we see what goes on in China, we can really understand at a more personal level how seriously we should appreciate those liberties and the blessing that we have today, and that we should take that as an opportunity to exercise our ability to share what we believe with other people and to do it in a kind and in a winsome way, but also with intelligence. And A.T. Jones, I think his own special way, was doing that when he was testifying before Congress. Also, we talked about Christian nationalism. It's neither Christian, it's also not very American. And so it's easy to see why people are allured by the claims of people who support a Christian nationalist view, because it sounds familiar. It sounds like it should be consistent with what we believe, but when you really dig down deep into it, into what they're saying, and then also to our understanding of the Bible, it's just not compatible. Also, we need to take religious liberty seriously. Remember what A.T. Jones said. <laughs> he was like, you all thought that Congress wasn't gonna close the fair on Sunday, and guess what, they did. Don't wait until it's happened to then try to get in action and try to do the right thing. Make sure that we're advocating from the time now. And that's something that as a Seventh-day Adventist, I'm very proud of our church for, that when different religious liberty issues are presented to our government and also in other parts of the world, that we do take an active role even today still advocating for the interests of the religious liberty of all. We've even argued for people who we don't necessarily agree with. There was a very famous case, Smith v. somebody, I can't remember the other one, the, the other party in it, but basically it was Native Americans who the U.S. Congress passed a law against smoking peyote. But there was Native Americans who said, we use this in our religious liberty, or not in our religious liberty, in our religious ceremonies. And so we want to, you know, we need an, an exemption from this law because we can't have our religious ceremony anymore. Seventh-day Adventists came in and they filed a brief in that case. And we filed it in support of the Native Americans asking to smoke their peyote, even though we don't believe in using illicit substances or anything, but we believe in people's ability to worship freely. And that if we want to have that protected for ourselves, it has to be protected for everyone, even people who don't agree the same as we do. So take our religious liberty seriously. By the way, the government said that they didn't mess up by passing that law. And that was a change in religious liberty jurisprudence that started limiting the free exercise portion that we had enjoyed for a very long time. There was about a 30 or 40 year period where there are very strong free exercise protections in this country. Those have been limited a little bit now, but that's for another time. The next thing is that big controversies have come the footnotes of history. You know, sometimes it can be overwhelming to live in a time of conflict and of great, you know, cultural dissonance and like people not agreeing and everything and thinking like, you know, my goodness, this is horrible. The funny thing is as big of a deal as this was in 1893, if you go on Wikipedia, you're not gonna find much about this. You might find it in a footnote. For example, those coins that I showed with the souvenir coins, it was at the very bottom in a footnote that you can read on there. This research was not by Wikipedia, by the way. <laughs> you can find in a footnote that there was something to do with Sunday closings on that. Things that can seem like big deals often end up becoming a footnote later on. So if you're discouraged, whether it's like in your church or your family, something that seems like there's a big deal, we're never gonna get along and get past this. With time, oftentimes, these things just become footnotes to history. That said, and I wanna underline this because I don't wanna undermine what we teach about um, what's gonna happen in the last days, is that if it can happen before, it can happen again. As I said, I grew up a Seventh-day Adventist. I was in Seventh-day Adventist schools for my whole entire upbringing. 
And I did not know that there was a Sunday law movement. I did not know there was serious legislation introduced in Congress. I remember us in Sabbath school, you know, praying like, thank you, God, for the freedom we have to worship freely. And like a friend muttering under their breath, like, oh, that would never happen in America. I'm thinking like, I believe the Bible or I believe they tell us that this stuff's going to happen. But I don't know. Like, I think America's a free place, too. And then when I learned this stuff, it suddenly made me feel like it helped encourage my faith to know that this had happened before. And the arguments that people made in the past are arguments that people are still making today in favor of things like Sunday legislation. In fact, this presentation comes from a paper I wrote while I was in law school. And I was reacting to a book that came out by a woman named Judith Shulovitz. This was about 10 years ago, 12 years ago. And um, the name of the book is The Sabbath World. She is a secular Jew. And her argument in that book is that the Sunday laws of the 19th century were underrated. We need to rest. We need to rest as a community. So the national government needs to get on board and legislate a day off together. And because we live in America and most people would prefer to take Sunday off, it should be Sunday. Not a Christian, not a religious person particularly advocating for this. And she's not the only one. I just know that a lot of times what we can teach can be met with skepticism, whether it's from within or from without. But in the study of history, in addition to the study of God's word, I just find a lot of encouragement to know I can have faith in what God's word is telling me because it's happened before and we know it's going to happen again. If for any reason you want to catch some of those quotes I had before, the slides can be found at the website on the screen. You can send questions my way. And just as an aside, um, if you happen to be a woman or you know women and you're on Instagram and you want to have more conversations like this, some friends and I have a project. We just like to talk about things. It's called Some Adventist Women. So please check us out there as well. Thank you for your time. And let's pray one more time. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for this time to come together. We just pray, Father, that we would both be sobered and encouraged by the way that you've led in our past history and that you would help us to have no fear for the future as a result as we go forward into the times. We may be tempted to say that they're uncertain times and maybe we won't know exactly what they look like or what, how things will happen, but we thank you for the assurance of your word that we have an understanding of the things to come. We pray that you would find us faithful today and in those days and that we would be on the right side of your work, Lord, in advocating for the liberty of others and in proclaiming the three angels' message to the world. Thank you, and we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.